0: welcome back to the Mike Meets London Tastemakers podcast. In this episode, I chat to Chef Tim Anderson, whom you may know as the winner of MasterChef, or the man behind ramen restaurant Namban London, or from one of his ever-increasing number of cookbooks. I chat to him about how he got into Japanese food, his time in Japan eating weird and wonderful dishes, using the flavours of London to create new recipes, and how sake is going to be the next big thing. So without further ado, let's hop in. So, I'm here chatting with Chef Tim Anderson, hot off the back of the release of his latest book. So, Tim, do you want to start by introducing yourself? Tell us a bit about who you are, what you do?
1: Sure. Uh, My name is Tim Anderson. I am uh, the owner-chef at Nanban, which has a branch in Brixen and Seven Dollars Market near Garden. And I write cookbooks. I've just published my fifth cookbook, Your Home Izakaya, which uh, is all about Japanese drinking food. But uh, I've also written Japanesey, vegan Japanesey, Tokyo stories, and Nanban, uh, which cover all different kinds of Japanese cooking.
0: Amazing, yeah! It's a pretty big CV, <laughs> which we'll hopefully sort of get a chance <laughs> to uh, touch on, like every sort of little element of it. Cool. But you started out life back in the states, right? So I was wondering whether you. Yeah sort of have a particular sort of history with food that dates back to your sort of childhood or any sort of formative memories that sort of put you down the path of uh, becoming a chef, I suppose?
1: Yeah, um, as far back as I can remember, I've been into food, really. And when I was a teenager, or maybe even a little bit before that, I started watching Food Network all the time (laughs) in America. And back then, it was people like Emeril Lagasse, Martin Yan, Ming Tsai... Rachel Ray, Jada Dillard, I don't even know how many of these names make sense to people (laughs) here, Um, but they were big deals when I was a kid, Um, and I I didn't cook much as a kid, Uh, I wasn't the kind of, we didn't have the kind of family where like I was in the kitchen helping my mom cook because she worked and she was just putting dinner on the table efficiently more than anything, always making good food, but like I was too busy watching TV to really help out in the the (laughs) kitchen anyway. Um, But TV was uh, my sort of in, my my intro to food, Uh, and one of the shows that um, I really got hooked on was Iron Chef, which is a Japanese cooking show, competition show, uh, which came on TV when I was about 13 or 14, and I got really into that, and that sort of uh, is what initiated my interest in Japanese food in particular, and then it sort of went from there. I started to try and learn everything I could about Japanese food in Wisconsin, and uh, that was kind of limited, although right. there was there were a few really good Japanese restaurants in Milwaukee and also Chicago. I, I grew up not far from Chicago, uh, so I would go to those places and, and eat everything and try to learn everything and, and cook a little bit uh, at home when I was a teenager. But then it really all sort of kicked off when I went to college, which was in Los Angeles, hmm. uh, which I, I moved there deliberately because I knew there was more Japanese food to learn about there. Right, right. It was a much bigger Japanese diaspora population yeah that that's the beginning anyway that's how it started it started with tv with iron chef
0: i mean that's it's it's a great beginning to any story
1: (laughs) yeah (laughs) everybody should watch more tv is the moral of that story
0: it's the message we want people to take away yeah um so so then after college you actually went over to japan right
1: yeah yeah so while i was in college i was studying uh, japanese history basically and then i managed to get a, a research grant to go over there to study Food, Well, local food museums, actually, was mm. what it was about. And I was there for a little while and then obviously wanted to learn more. So I went back after I graduated the easiest way I could, which was to be an English teacher there, which I'd recommend to any young person who might be listening. it has an interest in Japan, it's just a mm. great way to go and experience the culture. But anyway, while I was there, obviously, I learned a lot more about the food, mainly by eating, not mm. so much by cooking. So yeah, that that was like being immersed in it was, um, it, it's one thing to study it sort of in abstraction and, and to learn about it not in Japan, but once you're mm. there, it, it becomes so much more mind-blowing, right, <laughs> I guess, right. mainly because of just the huge diversity of it that you realize, like I think that a lot of people um, have a certain idea of what Japanese food is in their in their heads. And I, I'm sure I did at that point as well. But once you're in, once you're there in the country, you realize it's it's so big and so mm. like there's, there's so much complexity to it that it, it's hard to even pin down. It's like and, and it, it it never ends what you can learn uh, about Japanese food and, and from Japanese food.
0: Right, right. And and did you sort of, I mean, I guess get talking with sort of some of the chefs or, or people that you met over there? Like, what did people think about your, I guess, quest to understand more about about the cuisine?
1: You know what? I, I think that um, it didn't seem odd to most people because I think that in Japan there is a sense that they they know that they have something special right right uh, in their food. I, I think that uh, the, I, I would get the odd comment that people would say like, "Oh, you're you're really into Japanese food," like, and it, it was sometimes in the sense of like like they were calling me a bit of a nerd <laughs> right, right. Um, like or, or a geek or whatever. But for the most part, like. It wasn't unusual, like I I would go around from place to place in Japan and seek out certain restaurants and certain dishes, and that's not unusual in Japan. Mm. That's kind of what people do, that's a big part of domestic tourism and just a big part of the culture. So the main thing that I found in Japan was that people were very generous and open in terms of sharing Mm. their food and sharing their culture anyway. And I think it just like, you know, being receptive to that, was people met with with enthusiasm like the more the more that i wanted to learn the more enthusiasm that i showed the more people would respond in kind
0: oh fantastic and did you sort of discover any new favorites in terms of like dishes or even like regional cuisines over there
1: oh (laughs) yeah i don't know where to start with that like uh I'll tell you what. There were a lot of like acquired tastes. There were things that I, I didn't know about, and then encountered for the first time when I was in Japan, hmm. and I wasn't really sure about them at the when I first had them. But after having them a few times, or or um, you know, just keeping open mind of them every time they were served, I would come to really like them. One of them was mentaiko, which is like a chili cured hmm. uh, pollock roe, which at first I like I just wasn't. I wasn't sure about it. It's not that I disliked it. It just was a, a bit weird to me. And, hmm. um, oh, basashi, <laughs> basashi is a horse meat sashimi. Oh, it's right, yes. a specialty of Kumamoto Prefecture. Um, these are things that I was like, you know, I tried them at first and I was like, eh, I don't know. But um, I knew that they were special. And so I would keep eating them. And I did come to really love most of them. Not everything. <laughs> I'm still on the fence about natto.
0: <laughs> <laughs> Had a feeling that might come up, yeah. Yeah. Amazing. And then after all of that, you moved back to well, not back to, but to London of all places. Yeah. Was there a, a particular, I guess, trigger behind that?
1: Oh yeah. So uh, I I met my wife in in Japan while we were uh, while I was there. We were working together in the same city, right, and right. she's she's British. So hmm. we started dating there, and then at the end of our tenure there, we were kind of debating whether where to go, what to do, and we decided to come back here. And we got married, and that's that. Basically, I had no, no plans to come to London or the UK. Generally, it just sort of happened.
0: Well, I mean, I don't know why anyone would plan to
1: come here, anyway. Really, but <laughs> well, it depends on what you're into. Like, I didn't know anything about. I, I really didn't know anything about the UK right. other than the stereotypes. Um, but I, I've always been a beer geek too. And okay. so the thing I was most excited about was was real ale, which <laughs> people don't really talk about as much these days as they used to, but like back then, because I moved here in 2008, it was really cool to come here and go to pubs and be able to get real ale and, and things like bitters and milds that, if you're in Japan or America, are really rare and weird. So the, I had a great time just going to all the pubs when I first moved here, I, I still, still do. <laughs>
0: Amazing. And so is that kind of what you were getting up to up until your uh, run on Masterchef?
2: Actually, yeah. Um,
1: <laughs> I, I didn't have any like qualifications when I moved here, but I wound up getting jobs in the beer business. At first, I was a... Um, well, the very first job I got here was as a, a travel agent. Hmm. I was hired by a boutique travel agency to do tours of Japan and stuff like that, but I was made redundant. And then yeah eventually after applying to loads of similar jobs and not getting anything eventually i just said well i I know a bit about beer so i'll try to get some beer jobs and i got my first beer job as a salesman for a company that was importing danish craft beer um which was before craft beer had really taken off here and so it was terrible it was (laughs) didn't work out obviously and anyway moved from that to get a job at a supermarket as a beer buyer Hmm. um and then wound up running a pub, the Euston Tap, ah. uh, which was one of the, the first uh, specialist craft beer bars in London before, like I said, it really took off. And, and then MasterChef happened. But it's funny, if that hadn't happened, then I'd, prob- I'd probably still be working in the beer industry because that's the way my career was going.
0: Wow, yeah, that would have been uh, quite a different path. <laughs> yeah. And so I guess MasterChef might be what sort of most of our listeners will know you from. Sort of what was that? experience like sort of how did it come about for you as well
1: well i um i was a fa- we you know i would never seen that show before i moved here i i was a, a fan of the show like i said i always have liked cooking shows yeah. uh, food shows um so i started watching that when i moved here and at the end of the second uh, series that i saw which was in 2010 the year drew baker one i just decided to apply online cuz i like cooking i thought it looked Fun and I didn't really think anything of it because um, you don't have anything to lose, obviously. Sure, you're applying, yeah. so I applied and I, I didn't think I would get on because thousands of people apply. But a few months later, I got a phone call and then was co- called in for an interview and then an audition and then I was on the show. And like I said, didn't think anything would come of it. Even when I was on it, like I I tried my best, but I didn't have any grand ambitions. Mm. I just thought, you know, this is something that. I will, we'll, we'll see what happens. Basically, <laughs> sure. um, I didn't really realize what it could uh, mean for me at the time. I, I, I just thought, like, okay, if I if I lose, I lose, and and I'll carry on working behind the bar or whatever. And if I win, well, I don't know. I may also still end up working behind the bar because <laughs> there's no prize. There's no guarantees. Obviously, yeah. a lot's come of it. But I, I didn't even give notice at the Houston Tap until after I'd won. Right. I just thought, well, <laughs> we'll see what happens. This could be a big deal or it could be a blip. Uh, it turned out it was a pretty big deal.
0: <laughs> so, I, I, yeah, I take it that means that quite a lot of sort of doors opened for you after that then. Um, were people sort of coming to you with opportunities or did you have kind of the, the seed of Nanban in your head at that time?
1: Yeah, well, I mean, all kinds of opportunities come your way um, when you're the reigning MasterChef champion, just because people want that that person. Yeah. Um, and It doesn't really matter who you are. I mean, I got some very odd jobs back then. I, I worked for the Malaysian Trade Commission, which is very strange, cause <laughs> I have obviously no knowledge of Malaysian food, but they wanted people, somebody who could help promote Malaysian ingredients. I worked for Oral-B, the toothpaste company, nice. who nice. wanted recipes that are bad for your teeth, which was actually a lot of fun. <laughs> So yeah, there's a lot of just quite random weird stuff that came up. But as for Nanban, I mean, I I, I had wanted to open a ramen shop in London before I was on MasterChef. Because when I moved here from Japan, ramen wasn't a thing. And and you could count on one hand the amount of places that were doing decent ramen. Mm. And, and and it wasn't that good <laughs> back yeah. then there were there were a handful of mom and pop places that had ramen on the menu like japanese casual places uh, but they weren't ramen specialists and so the ramen was like it was good but nobody was really devoting themselves to it mm-hmm. the way so many places are now so we uh, you know ipudo which is one of my favorite ramen shops from japan that's in london now and they've got i think five branches i don't know and my, one of my friends and I actually wrote to Ibruto and said, "Can we open a franchise here?" Mm. This was in 2000, uh, must have been 2009 or maybe early 2010 or something. Just because, like, we wanted ramen. We there wasn't <laughs> there wasn't a place to go for good ramen. Yeah. So I'd always wanted to do that, and and Nanban um, uh, came out of that, and then it it just provided like MasterChef just provided the platform basically uh, to get that off the ground.
0: Nice and so uh, sort of where what is the, I guess the core of Namban like where did you start in terms of ramen like is it sort of classic tonkotsu or sort of influenced by your travels in Japan or
1: yeah ramen uh, ramen um, Namban started off specifically uh, uh, doing the food of Kyushu and some of Okinawa because the other thing I, I thought back then was that there wasn't I didn't think there was enough regional representation mm. of Japanese food and and I'd seen. Like, polpo was, was big back then, and it was specifically Venetian. And, of course, we have all kinds of regional Chinese and Indian and other regional foods in the U.K. And I thought, well, where's the regional Japanese stuff? So I wanted to do specifically Kyushu food, uh, which is all kinds of stuff. I mean, I mentioned mentaiko earlier. That's a, a big key flavor. There's chicken namban from Nagasaki Prefecture or nambanzuke, things like that. Sorry, chicken namban from Miyazaki, not Nagasaki. There's, uh, yeah, just so many different sort of all these regional dishes from all over that island. Uh, And I wanted to do that. And that's what I did for a while. And of course, a big part of that was ramen and and specifically Tonkotsu ramen, which originated in in Hakata Mm. Prefecture uh, and all the variations of that from around the island. Uh, So that's what I focused on. And of course, that was what I was really into anyway. And I did that uh, as a pop-up for... I don't know three three years or so two four three right, or right. four years, doing just not strictly traditional Kyushu food but mostly traditional. We we serve basashi, <laughs> <laughs> or uh, uh, in fact, um, some people may know shofudo, uh, the okonomiyaki pop up, who's been going for a long time as well. A guy named Fumio, he and I and another Japanese chef did a horse meat pop up <laughs> or right. horse meat dinner in whenever that horse meat scandal was. I think it was oh, 2013. Yeah, yeah. Just because horse in Japan, and, and it's not taboo. It's, it's a perfectly legitimate meat. <laughs> so anyway, we did stuff like that. But then uh, we did a, I did a pop-up in 2014 in Brixton, and that's when I decided to start using stuff from Brixton Market. And that's when the whole fusion side of Nanban came in. Because I'd wanted to open the restaurant in East London, because I think that's where I thought there was more of a market and and more of a gap in the market, because most of the, because by that point, I think, so Tonkotsu and Bone Daddy's had already opened. I think they they both opened in 2010 or 11, something Mm. like that. And they were open in Central. And I thought, well, we need ramen in East London, because I think people would really go for it. But the opportunity, so I did this pop-up in Brixton, and that led to the restaurant, and, and Opening there, because because of Brixton market and because of what I knew about it, and because I knew that like a lot of restaurants were opening in Brixton and just not even acknowledging the market or right. the sort of local culture that's there, I wanted to at the very least sort of use the market for ingredients and inspiration and draw attention to the local culture. So that's how we wound up being what we are now, which is very much a sort of <laughs> Kyushu Brixton fusion restaurant, <laughs> like. We do still have a lot of the, not a lot, but some of the classic Kyushu dishes like the Kumamoto ramen is is still one of our biggest sellers, or the Miyazaki ramen, and karage, which is not, not really a particularly Kyushu thing, mm. although the original recipe was based on an Oita style, um, and and gyoza as well, which is quite Kyushu in a way. So those are those are all still there, but then obviously we we take a hell of a lot of inspiration and flavors and ingredients uh, from bricks to market, and that's. That's become our real identity.
0: What would you say kind of embodies that fusion in terms of like a dish? What sort of screams that Brixton Kyushu <laughs> flavor?
1: Well, I guess the one that we're known for and the one that I, I guess best embodies that is the lazy goat ragu men, <laughs> <laughs> which it's a silly name, but it's, we've come to that name <laughs> through a process. Originally, it was a curry goat it's gay men, so it was, it was a curry goat dish. Uh, with noodles on the side for dipping. Mm. So the idea was, you have a curry goat, and then it, the noodles would be like a roti. Basically, you dip it right, in, right. And get the sauce up, and stuff like that. But over time, like we have a, we've always had a lot of South Asians working in the kitchen, and I worked with them, especially our our old head chef Ravaj Maharaj, who's uh, Indian South African. He worked a lot on that dish and rejig the masala, the spice blends, and made it better but also made it not really like a traditional jamaican curry goat at all hmm. um so we changed the name because it wasn't really like curry goat anymore we called it lazy goat because it's, it was boneless and it was very soft and, and falling off the bone and stuff like that um it was a, it remained at skamen for years but we found that people didn't really know how to eat it they were like mm. dumping all the noodles into the curry once or vice versa everything would kind of go cold that way wasn't right so we decided to just sort of put everything together as a ramen but the broth is not really broth it's more like a sauce so we decided to call it ragu man um in the end that's how we want the name Um, but anyway the uh, the the sort of bricks and elements that came into it first of all obviously the inspiration came from curry goat Mm. but also little touches here and there like one of the things that we put on it is something we call seafood sawdust so in Japan, you get dried fish and shellfish powders that are, mm. that are used in, in ramen in all kinds of ways, and especially it's gay men. You, you can't really get those here except for katsuobushi powder. I know uh, Poco, Poco ramen, who's based in Essex, mm. he dries his own cockles uh, to make into powders. Oh, right. <laughs> this is amazing. Intense. Um, but anyway, people have found all these workarounds to get that very strong, umami, dried, smoky seafood flavor. Uh, into the ramen and the one that we wound up using is uh these dried smoked prawns from Mm. west africa which we roast and then blitz to a dust and combine it with katsubushi and that goes on it Uh, and it gives this very very strong delicious yeah seafoody briny punchy umami flavor Uh, and then of course there's scotch bonnets uh which are in the curry itself and and also blitzed up into a pickling liquor for this uh bamboo shoots we put on it. So when you eat it, you, you won't immediately think oh it's it's Afro Caribbean or something like that, but there's elements in there that come from that tradition. But it's it's a real mess of a dish. Like it's it's got Korean gochujang and obviously it's a Japanese format. So it's it's all over the place and I think that's kind of uh I think it's good because I think that Brixen is like that as well. Like Hmm. It's known for uh, Caribbean and West African food, but actually, it's got a lot of other things going on too. And over the years, we've incorporated all kinds of stuff uh, into the food. I mean, there's our our main supplier in mixed market is a place called Aziz Cash and Carry, Hmm. and uh, it's right in the corner of Electric Lane and and Electric Avenue. And if you go in there, you're not just getting you know African Caribbean stuff. You're going to get stuff from Latin America. You're going to get stuff from East Africa. You're gonna get stuff from the Middle East, uh, mm-hmm. South Asia. Like just that one shop has so much stuff, <laughs> mm-hmm. and uh, and then of course there's the fresh produce too. Like we do a, a changing, a daily changing market tempura, which originally was a salad. And we used to do a, a market fish dish. So anyway, all of this stuff like has influenced the menu, and some of it comes from like a place of of thinking. Okay, like what are the classic. African caribbean or the classic bricks and flavors and how do we incorporate them into the a japanese menu but some of it is just about like oh what's what's in this market and mm. what works so like a, another one is uh that we have on the menu now is okonomiyuka which are yuka chips cassava chips fried with okonomiyaki toppings and that's just from realizing that oh yuka chips are plentiful and available and delicious and mm. they work great with tonkatsu sauce and and Kewpie mayo so why not
0: a happy discovery, definitely. Yeah. <laughs> so I mean, don't want to dwell on kind of the menu of Numban for too long, I suppose. But I guess now that you're in Seven Dials Market as well, like, how yeah. have you sort of, I guess, adapted to a different location, or have you tried to bring like a slightly different sort of taste to that area?
1: Yeah, that's been a bit difficult actually, because we don't have that market to um, get inspiration from. But so Curb, when they opened Seven Dials Market, their slogan was "Tastes like London." Mm. And I thought that was interesting <laughs> um, because what does London taste like? I mean, it's every, it's different things to different people. But one of the dishes that I came up with for Seven Dials was this dry lamb curry maze men, mm. which for me, like, this is a very, you know, this is a hopeless generalization, but for me, spice is, a, is the taste of London. Mm. Like, you get it in South Asian curries, you get it in, in all kinds of, regional Chinese food, obviously uh, Caribbean food as well, West African, like there's so many spices that run through London food, I guess. Again, it's, it's very hard to pin down, but like yeah. I thought we should try to put together some of those. And obviously this dish was very much kind of based on the, the lazy goat from Brixton, but with a broader sense of like what what kind of food is runs through London. Like we, we brought in a lot of spicing that you get from like northeast China or mm. uh, yeah northwest China rather um and South Asia so that dish has I can't remember the recipe off the top of my head but there's more than 20 spices right. and it's something that like kind of shouldn't work but it all comes together and it's like you taste it and, and depending on your your perspective you might think oh this this tastes like a South Asian lamb curry or you might think this tastes like a Sichuan dish um or a Xinjiang dish or you might think it's just kind of a weird Japanese dish I, I don't know like <laughs> But it, it kind of works, and of course we put cheese on it because that's the other um, case of London. Everything here, beautiful. Yeah. Uh, yeah, should have cheese on it. But yeah, that's the kind of thing. And and also, you know, uh, Seven dollars Market used to be a banana warehouse and, mm. a, and a cucumber warehouse. So even though it's not, you know, the area is not known for bananas and cucumbers, there is at least that historical uh, kind of inspiration to, to incorporate those things into the into the dishes. So like now we're doing katsu curry there. And cuts curry ramen, and the the curry has banana worked through it. We did uh, sort of cucumber, an ode to cucumber chilled ramen Mm. a couple years ago. Things like that. So there's, you know, the thing is for me, it's it's about like finding inspiration wherever you can. And in Seven L's market, it comes from I guess the market itself, but London generally, and also I should say from Chinatown. We're not in Chinatown, obviously, but we're very nearby, Mm. and we do get a lot of ingredients from there and a lot of inspiration from there.
0: Amazing. Yeah, that is, I guess, as you say, like London is a, a melting pot for basically <laughs> food from all over the world. I, I think you've yeah, managed to kind of distill that <laughs> quite nicely down into yeah, a very
1: well, tight menu. it's hard. Yeah, <laughs> but I I try.
0: <laughs> so I guess moving away from Nanban a little bit, as well as the several books of your own that you mentioned earlier on, you've also got a bunch of kind of other writing credits and radio credits and things. I'm wondering kind of as a kind of multimedia chef, I suppose, um, <laughs> Like, did you ever imagine you kind of end up doing all these sort of different bits and pieces? Or is it all kind of just circumstance?
1: I didn't imagine it. But um, especially with regard to the cookbooks, I I did realize recently that it makes sense. Like, when I went to college to study Japanese food culture or Japanese history, that's not something that necessarily leads into a, like, there's not a direct line from that to a career. And Mm. then there wasn't but now that i am writing about japanese food in particular professionally like that tracks like that makes hmm. sense and it makes sense that i will have i've i've been studying something sort of my whole adult life and that i wound up where i am i mean obviously not everybody has an experience but before i was writing professionally like i had a blog like everybody did right. um, it's just like writing about japanese food and talking about it and cooking it that is something i have been doing anyway so it's sort hmm. of it makes sense that i wound up here as a career but no i, I never imagined I, I would actually have been able to do it and it's it's an amazing sort of privilege and and a, and it's very cool like if i could say to my younger self like my 22 year old uh japanese food obsessed self that hey you're hmm. gonna end up writing cookbooks on japanese food and talking on the radio <laughs> about it i think he'd be thrilled i think he'd be hmm. Well, maybe he wouldn't. Maybe he had grander ambitions. I don't know. But it's, it's worked out for me <laughs> from my perspective now.
0: I mean, yeah, it's fantastic to be able to do something that you love, obviously. So uh, I think it's yeah, yeah. work, worked out pretty well. I mean, so like you say, your newest book, Your Home Izakaya, uh, yeah. just came out, which is amazing. Congrats. Um, Thank you. Do you want to sort of give us uh, a sort of brief spiel about it? And sort of why did you pick to sort of do an Izakaya theme for this book?
1: Well, I actually didn't pick it because what happened was I pitched a book about Hokkaido, the northernmost island of Japan, to my publisher. They they picked it up, but then couldn't go to Hokkaido because of uh, COVID, and still can't go to Hokkaido. And I said to my (laughs) publisher, "I I can't write this book; like (laughs) it's not going to work." And she said, "Well, can you do an izakaya book?" And I said, "I can," (laughs) because I've been to a lot of izakaya in my life and. Mm. Uh, that's the kind of thing that's in my wheelhouse. So, uh, that's how it started. But as I was writing about writing it, I realized that it's kind of, it's probably the book I should have been writing all along because it is very much like my kind of Japanese food.
2: Hmm.
1: Izakaya are some of my favorite places in Japan to go eat. And the food is very much in keeping with sort of the food that I cook anyway. Like I don't do like classical Japanese food, particularly I'm not classically trained or anything like that. But Japanese drinking food and, and what they call BQ Gurume, which is like literally translates as B-grade gourmet, <laughs> um, which is like, you know, hearty, filling, soul food type dishes. That's the kind of thing that I've always been into. So it, it made a lot of sense for me to write it. The The challenge of it was actually trying to work out if I actually if you could recreate an izakaya experience at home, because like a lot of restaurants, izakaya are a lot about their atmosphere and the sort of intangible aspects of them, mm. not just about the food. So I thought, oh, I don't know if I can even do this. But as I was writing it over the course of the lockdown, I realized uh, you can do it. And it's, it's mainly about sort of like just putting things uh, on the table that are fun and that bring people together, even if it's just your family. Like mm. uh, I spoke to my friend Fumio from Shofudo for the book, and I interviewed him. And he brought up the term crowd pleasers to describe what makes good izakaya food. And I thought that's it. It's, it's not about like, it's not about doing anything particularly fussy or fancy. It's just about putting things out that are, that really get people excited that mm. like that they can share and talk about and, and drink and, and laugh over basically. So it, it was, it was a really fun book to write actually, even though I was, yeah, doing it by myself <laughs> basically or just with my family. But yeah, I, I hope people like it. I, cause uh, it's, it, like I said, it's the kind of food that I'm very passionate about, I guess. And like one of the things that was cool for me when I was writing it was that I was giving it to like this kind of food to my daughter who mm. turned two at the beginning of the first lockdown and watching her eat like things like karage and gyoza and, and things like that for the first time and just seeing how excited she was by that. And I hope people have the same kind of experience that they can try something new, whether not just with their kids, but with their friends and family at home and get people excited basically
0: amazing and so uh, you said it's kind of closest to your style uh, of cooking that you prefer i guess so do you have like a a signature dish or your favorite thing to kind of cook up at home
1: oh at home you know what's funny well <laughs> the one the dish from your homie zakaia that i think is ridiculous but i'm also weirdly proud of it are um, the, this, these fish finger temaki, fish finger okay. hand rolls, which I kind of I came up with after Christmas last year when I was sick of Christmas food. I just wanted some Japanese food, specifically sushi, but didn't have any good fish in the house. Right. But we had fish fingers. And obviously, I always have rice and how to make sushi rice and that nori and all the condiments and stuff. But I just thought, well, why not? Let's try it. And it, it works really, really well. Um, so... You know, for people who don't know what tamaki is, it's a hand roll sushi. So you take a piece of nori, a little bit of rice, uh, maybe some shredded radish and stuff like that, and then fillings, and you wrap it up in a little cone or or a little roll, and you eat it uh, with your hands and fish fingers. You know, they sound ridiculous. They work really, really well. And I, I I took a picture of this when I was making it and sent it to a Japanese friend of mine, and I thought she was just going to laugh at me. But she just pointed out that it's like ebi fry, which are like the breaded fried mm. prawns, which or or prawn tempura as well, which obviously are, you know, a staple in, in a lot of hand rolls, and so there it is. I mean, it's it's like it's like this. It is, like, almost legitimate Japanese food, <laughs> but not. Um, but I think it's in keeping with this spirit in Japan of sort of like using what's around, and and in, in particular in izakaya, also like not being too worried about what's. Fancy or fine dining, just sort of having this attitude of of, you know anything goes, and as long as it's fun and gets people together and it's good with the beer sake, then it works.
0: Amazing, and I I find it really interesting. Yeah, I mean, like you've talked a lot about using sort of fusion elements in your food, and yeah, sort of using what's around and and making things fun. I guess, but people also kind of refer to you as, I guess, a a leading voice in sort of Japanese cuisine, quote unquote, in the UK, and kind of I, I wonder sort of how you feel about that label, I suppose, and kind of whether you aspire to sort of your particular sort of brand of sort of Japanese fusion, I suppose, rather than just kind of uh, exemplifying Japan as a whole in that sense.
1: Yeah, I mean, I think that what, what I don't like is when people call me an expert. Mm. That really bothers me. <laughs> uh, a, because I don't really consider myself an expert. There's a lot I don't know about Japanese food, like a lot. And I'm not saying that out of some kind of false modesty or anything, but like, for example, I I don't know how to make sushi properly. I can do it, but that's why we don't serve sushi at at the restaurants or or anything like that. It's why I don't do sushi classes and I don't write Hmm. much about it in my books because like that is a completely separate thing that takes years Mm. of of training and practice uh, to get right so And there's all kinds of other, you know, Japanese foods like that, that I just, I have no, absolutely no authority speaking about. So, you know, I don't, I don't like to be called an expert. And and I I almost feel like almost nobody should be called an expert (laughs) on Japanese food because, because of that kind of like that diversity Mm. and and how there are so many different specialisms in Japanese food. Even somebody who's been cooking Japanese food uh, and is properly trained in something, let's say a sushi chef. A sushi chef may have no idea how to make ramen, Mm. or yakitori, things like that, or konomiyaki. So I I guess, you know, I I don't mind being considered a voice on Japanese food, but what I want people to understand is that I am just one voice, and I hope that people cast a wide net when they're looking for knowledge of Japanese food. Mm. Like, I realize, I don't remember when, but I realize that some people will buy my books or, or whether one of my books, and let's say Japanese, yeah, it's probably the biggest seller at this point, and they'll think, oh, I know about Japanese food because I bought this book. And what I realize I have to do is, is to kind of like anticipate that and, and mitigate it and and be very explicit. And I've tried to do it more now uh, in your home izakaya and say, like, look, this is, this is one part of Japanese food. This is my perspective on Japanese food. This is what I know. And also, by the way, this is sometimes my, only my interpretation of it. If you want to understand Japanese food, don't stop here. You mm-hmm. have to keep looking. You have to keep eating. You have to keep cooking because it just keeps going. And the more you know, the better understanding you'll have of Japanese food. So I guess there, there are lots of other like you know Japanese chefs. Obviously, there are lots of other Japanese cookbook authors that are out there who are active. In the UK or, or everywhere and I just think people should like try them all look them all up read them all do it all we like every, everybody has an angle on Japanese food mm-hmm. and I'm I'm the same like I have my own kinds of things that I love about Japanese food I have my own specialisms and I have the things that really enthuse me but if you have you shouldn't have blinders on like you You can have those enthusiasms and and the things that were your favorites in Japanese food, but don't let that color your perspective of of Japanese food generally. Like, always keep an open mind about it, and I think that, you know, you'll have a much better understanding. I don't know if that even answers your question. Uh,
0: uh, Definitely. (laughs) I mean, I I asked a very awkward, long-winded question, so no, you you tackled it expertly. Um, (laughs) I I was just wondering whether, talking about blinders, whether you have those for udon, I suppose.
1: (laughs) (laughs) Udon? Uh, <laughs> I'll tell you what about udon. It's my least favorite noodle. <laughs> my least favorite Japanese noodle anyway. Because too often it's, it's kind of like too soft and slippery. And it, it doesn't, for me it doesn't have much character. But I gotta say, every time I go to Koya, I think it's probably the best Japanese restaurant. No, definitely the best Japanese restaurant in the UK in spite of it being udon. <laughs> <laughs> the the udon is phrase, really, yeah. really good there. Like, I think the problem that I have with udon is that so much of it isn't good udon, but theirs is amazing. And not only that, like, they they really get at something uh, special about Japanese food, which is, like I said earlier, using what's around. Not fish fingers like I do. <laughs> <laughs> but they're very, very good at using, like, um, uh, British produce uh, mm-hmm. and, and incorporating it into traditional Japanese dishes, pickles, tempura, all kinds of things. Uh, they do mm-hmm. a... They do an English breakfast udon, which I'm sure a lot of people have had. Uh, But it's all set within this very solid Japanese tradition. So, yeah, big shout out to Koya and their udon. But still, udon comes after ramen and soba for me.
0: Yeah, I I just had to bring it up as an udon fan. but uh, (laughs) (laughs) No, Koya, definitely smashing it. And that was going to be one of my questions is sort of when you uh, do get out and about on the town, what are the places that you like to, to visit and eat at?
1: I don't get out that much. Mm. Um, the, the place that I've realized is probably my favorite restaurant in London is uh, Jinjang, mm. which is in Deptford. And I don't actually go there that often. I usually get their takeaway. But it's, it's a Sichuanese restaurant. And it's so good. Like, just so good. I'm, I'm a massive Sichuan food fan. I, I, I obviously don't know that much about it. Uh, but their fish fragrant aubergine, the Yusheng aubergine, is really good. That's That might be my favorite dish in London. It's like aubergine candy. It's <laughs> so sweet and fudgy and tangy, perfectly spiced, just delicious. Yeah, that's the place, like, it's funny because um, the Docklands has a lot of really good Sichuanese restaurants, and, and I have a few others to recommend. There's Sichuan, which is in North Greenwich by the big Odeon, mm. it's next to a pizza hut. Um that place is excellent. There's a place called Shanshuijian in Limehouse, uh, which is fantastic. Yeah, these are these are my favorite places to go, really. Like I think I think in particular, like I love Japanese food obviously, but I I can cook it at home and I eat a lot yeah. of it, so when I go out it's nice to have something that I, I can't really do myself or sure, yeah. um yeah, can't cook. So Sichuanese places are great.
0: Oh, fantastic. Yeah, I'm de- definitely going to have to hunt down that aubergine. That sounds fun.
1: <laughs> yeah, it's awesome.
0: So I-, I guess like the last couple of things I wanted to ask you before we uh, wrap up is, so what does the-, the future hold for yourself or for Nanban or what-, what are your big plans?
1: <laughs> well, <laughs> uh, it's more of the same, really. More, um, more cookbooks on the horizon. Actually, that Hokkaido book is mm. uh, luckily only been postponed and not cancelled completely. So, as soon as I can go back to Japan, I'll be uh back there researching that and writing it um It's another cookbook that's been picked up um sort of a small one sort of fill the gap in between uh or, or before hokkaido comes out and and that that's it really I mean kitchen cabinet gotta keep keep doing that radio four and then hopefully some more odd writing jobs here and there. That's sort of what I'm trying to focus on in the future
0: nice. Uh, as a, as a little teaser, do you, you have a kind of idea for what's for any things that are going to be in the Hokkaido book? So you're talking things like soup curry or
1: oh yeah, uh, so soup curry definitely. Jingis Khan, which is uh, a stir fried well sort of half stir fried, half barbecued lamb and vegetable mm. dish. Well, that'll definitely be in there. There's a dish called Chan Yaki, which is like a uh, a griddled salmon, vegetable, miso, butter. Thing. it's it's amazing oh ikameshi which is um, squid stuffed with uh, mochi rice and and seasonings and vegetables and mm. stuff and then boiled in like a, a seasoned dashi um, and then sliced it's amazing So many good stuff oh uh, wasabi cheese Hokkaido's known for cheese production. Mm. there's gonna be loads of good stuff
0: Oh amazing yeah you, you've got me hungry just talking about it
2: <laughs>
1: great.
0: And the, the, the final one that I've been asking everyone that's the slight like curveball is, do you have a kind of idea for what the next big thing on the London food scene is going to be? So what,
1: what's the next big trend? I don't know, because every time I answer this question, I turn out to be wrong. <laughs> <laughs> I, I really wanted, when I opened Nanban, um, I thought shochu, I wanted shochu to be the big thing, which mm. is Japanese you know, distilled spirit. Uh, That never panned out, and I I still can't quite figure out why because people like shochu, but Mm -hmm. it's a little bit hard to describe, a little bit of a hard sell sometimes. But I I might say sake, actually, uh, because I think that the more I talk to people about Japanese food and, and the Izakaya book in particular more I realize people are interested in sake, but they, they, they don't know much about it, but they want to learn.
2: Hmm.
1: Um, and they like the idea of sake. Like, they like the idea of going to a restaurant, a Japanese restaurant, ordering the sake, because it's, it's something special, something different. But the knowledge isn't quite there yet. But now we have uh, sake breweries in the UK. We have hmm. Dojima and Kampai and Peckham. And there's another one, I forget the name of, doing sparkling sake. And these things, I think they're starting to reach a critical mass Where like they're on people's radar people are trying them with an open mind because i think a lot of people try sake and they have some kind of rough crap sake and they decide they don't like it yeah. forever <laughs> which was me as well when i was 18 i used to buy crappy sake uh, and i hated it i, I didn't <laughs> want to drink sake but over time obviously i learned and i acquired the taste and found sake that i love but i think people are getting to that point and actually it's amazing um i i bought in loads of kampai sake like a month ago uh, and decided to make a feature of it on the menu. And we're almost sold out completely. Yeah. Oh, so, amazing. Like, people are definitely like interested in sake. I don't know if it'll become like a full-fledged trend, but it's delicious. And I think that, that that's the thing. I think that if you get enough people to just try something and, and realize it's delicious, then it's only a matter of time before it becomes sort of mainstream and trendy. Amazing.
0: I mean, you heard it here first then, folks. Yeah. (laughs) Perfect. Well, thanks so much again, Tim, for taking the time to chat to me. It's been super enlightening, super interesting. My pleasure. Definitely would like to grill you for hours and hours about uh, all things Japanese food, but unfortunately, (laughs) I I don't want to take up any more of your time. So uh, there we go. Is there anything else you'd like to sort of promote or plug while we've got you?
1: Oh, that's a good question. Yeah. (laughs) On that (laughs) sake note. Hmm. There's a shop because everybody's always saying, "Where do I buy sake?" There's an online shop called Natural Natural. They're actually—they're not just online. They've got shops in Ealing, and I, I want to say Finchley too, but um, yeah, Finchley Road, yeah. Yeah, they—they they have an amazing online sake shop, uh, and they have a great loyalty program. <laughs> so you can stock up on sake and then uh, get amazing discounts later on. And, and this is what sort of sustained my sake habit throughout the lockdown. They're also great for all kinds of Japanese store-covered ingredients. So yeah, um, check out Natural Natural. to start you on your sake journey.
0: (laughs) Nice, good recommendation. Perfect. Well, on that note then, thanks very much again. And uh, uh, I'll see you soon, hopefully. uh, Thanks for having me. (laughs) Cheers. Cheers, thanks, Tim. So there you have it. Thanks so much again to Tim for taking the time to chat to me and for answering my messy, long winding questions. It's definitely worth tracking down Namban in Seven Dials Market or down in Brixton, and Tim has quite a catalogue of work you can check out as well, as we discussed. You can find me on Instagram at MikeEatsLondon or follow the pod at MikeMeatsLondon. If you enjoyed the episode, please do subscribe to the show wherever you get your podcasts, and if you feel like it, drop me a little review as well. See you next time!